really going to miss the frogs. And it's also difficult to feel that human language can improve upon that sound. This talk is called Eye to Eye, pun intended. When I was in uh, some time in high school, growing up in Latin America, in Argentina, my mother took us on an adventure, uh, her three girls and her. We went very far south in Argentina to a peninsula where there were elephant seals and whales and penguins and relics of indigenous settlements and things. It was, at the time, not really much accommodation, kind of this bare place that more than halfway to the South Pole, it felt. I think Californians have something similar of that kind of animal wealth in Monterey or somewhere like that. Um, The seals and the elephant seals breeding and how huge they were. And there was a bay where we could look at the Atlantic gray whales were having their breeding and their nursery thing there. And we saw a woman whale with her calf, my sister and I, and she was swimming along with her calf near her. You could kind of see her, and there was a little spit of land that stuck out into the deeper water and close to where she would pass. So my sister and I ran as fast as we could to the end of the piece of land. And when we got to the end, we were standing not very far from the whale, like about as far as from here to the first row. And she lifted her head out of the water and her eye, which seemed to be way down here, looked at us. Her eye, which was huge, like a big, almost like a person or, you know, like I don't know what. And we really looked at each other like I could feel being looked at by this being and seeing each other, seeing each other was really an amazing moment where we were both separate and diff- you know separate and different and together. And then she sank again into the water and went away. And that moment of connection is still with me in a way, like it's I can visit that place of that mysterious mutual knowing. I wanted to offer this to you as a thing to share, not to impress you with all the travels or anything like that, but a blessing as a something about the mystery of connection, how in the presence of another that the moment of timelessness and awe is also available, is also sacred. And that now as we come to the end of the retreat, there'll be times some of you have already been connecting with each other in presence and through words and interaction. And it's as if the, you know, unfathomable Buddha nature that mysteriously manifested as this kind of diverse, relatively diverse group of people both wants to be alone and also wants to connect. So it's part of our mysterious life that both of these forces are in us that pulsate like a heartbeat, like a breath. Not really different, but seemingly so. Fullness and emptiness. Another moment, um, traveling in East Tibet in a very remote place which took days of four-wheel drive to get to and no road and hidden in the mountains is this very large retreat encampment where people are living and in continuous practice like as we've been for this month for years on end it's kind of their life and it's not completely silent but the practice is quite serious and the teacher that I was traveling with had a connection with this the lama who was at the head of all of it who had spent the cultural revolution years and everything in meditating in a cave and not even 
much affected by the carnage in his country, but practicing deeply to benefit all beings with that as his motivation. And came out at the end, I don't know how long ago, he died, I guess, last year maybe. But he spent some time teaching. And we came in like just before dark, pitched our tents kind of in the dark, ate something, we had an appointment with him in the morning, and then we had to leave lest anybody know that we'd been there. So we were hustled into this little room with this very gently present old man who was sitting in what they meditate and live in kind of something like a box um, that they sleep in and meditate in. They just kind of don't actually do much walking meditation. (laughs) He had a little prayer wheel there that he would pull the string of to keep the prayers going as he was doing other things and so that his mental distraction wouldn't interrupt the flow and you could see a mountain through the window. And he agreed to give us a teaching and he asked us to focus our mind in a couple of different ways and then all of a sudden he took his shirt off and just showed us his bare chest and he said what do you see? <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit like the he's got my wings but I think in a way like just offering his heart or his truth. Afterwards he asked us what we thought we'd seen or what we'd seen, and I was so kind of speechless, I said I couldn't say anything, and he said, yes, very good. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So I know each of the teachers has tried to somehow share what's in our hearts and to the best of our ability here. In a talk about love, the love part of loving awareness, I know that um, the love is in you, and to be evoked by me is kind of a, it's either really easy or really hard, depending how you look at it. The last retreat I was at in January, there was this kind of wild woman there, and she had to leave early, and so she left us a letter, and one of the lines in the letter for departing yogis was, your heart is your home, your head is your office, don't get them mixed up. <laughs> so how do we move into this you know, mutual reverence and presence for another being? I uh, got some teachings from the opera singer who uh, is part of the maintenance crew here. You may not realize the hidden talents of members of the staff. He said to let you guys know that Speech consists of breathing and that you remember your breath and notice the intention to speak since we know how to be present with intention and the impulse to say something before someone has finished. And he asked what I thought was an interesting question. It's too late for you two-monthers because you've already already initiated yourselves. But he said, what would be the first word you'd want to say after all this silence. Actually, it's not too late to think what the first word we'd want to say would be. Would it be your name? And if your speaking was loving, act of loving of yourself and another, the person in your presence, then what would you say? Would that change it? So love and wisdom are the two eyes of the deity of compassion looking into our world. You can take that as an image for your practice as we go from here. Love and emptiness, or love and wisdom, the lights of ultimate reality that shine through into our relative world. Deepama, the great... Uh, Indian female meditation master who many of us have studied with said she can't tell the difference between mindfulness and metta. So just to review mindfulness and just pretend that we're talking about love at the same time and I think these are notes I took in Pascal's talk. An extraordinary form of attention. Love. Nonviolent 
non-judgmental, present and sustained. So love looking at everything with a loving gaze, extraordinary attention, non-violent, non-judgmental, present and sustained. And I think that giving and receiving love in one way of speaking is our deepest need. It can also be a practice that we carry from here that for some of us, this is, I mean, I'm not thinking this is a big news for you guys, really hoping to say what everybody already knows um, and go through it in a way that kind of makes sense for us. Talking about love as a practice as if it were the wisdom I, William Shakespeare said, love is not love that alters when it alteration finds. That there's a changelessness about the loving that's similar to the changelessness about the awareness that we keep bringing again and again, reconciling the awareness with what it sees. So the love doesn't alter when change comes or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, meaning ship. It is the star to every wandering ship. Love's worth is unknown, although its height be taken. Love is not time's fool, the rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never wrote, nor no one ever loved. The poetry is almost too much. It's like too heady. It's just too like rich and beautiful, but alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. Pascal was talking, uh, and Pascal and Winnie were talking last night about someone who died at, at IMS and what an amazing support it was for their retreat to watch the staff members coming in and out and attending on this person to the edge of doom, loving them on out. And I know some of you have done this with your loved ones or with people that you've served. So I think you know what the poet means here. This ability to love is part of our enlightened DNA or our Buddha nature. Um, It's a path. And whatever our ability might be or whatever we might feel it to be, it's a path that also can be trained in. Trungpa Rinpoche said, everybody loves something even if it's only pizza. We all know, or some of us may know, how deeply merging with a pizza might motivate us. (laughs) Becoming one and abolishing the division between oneself and that object. (laughs) And what we've learned here is much about, like what Shakespeare said, like when all the petty mind states come, all our delusions and disturbances, with a kind of kindness and lovingness, we soften into the experience of being overwhelmed with emotions or disturbance, or soften into joy and the ecstasy of experiencing real compassion or kindness or deep happiness for the first time. And as we feel sort of through the superficial aspect of experience down a little bit deeper, we start to have a sense of resonance with our own being, that this thing that we are, what we're looking for already, that this meditation awareness path keeps turning us back to come here and find the way here um, through this to know the nature of all things and all beings. And yet, I don't think any of us has quite come to the end of internal divisions and conflict. We doubt ourselves, we hate ourselves sometimes, we do things we wish we wouldn't do, and part of the anxiety about leaving retreat is knowing that that's going to keep happening probably and there'll be magnified opportunities for getting lost out there out from this protected environment. But let's just say that um, 
not to move too quickly to abolish the division, internal divisions. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, there's something of a civil war going on in all of our lives. He said, within the best of us, there's some evil, and within the worst of us, there's some good. And in this one sermon where he talks about loving our enemies, he builds the practice of loving one's enemies on the existence of good and evil in each of us, knowing that we're not perfect. So um, we can love even that within ourselves, learn to love that within ourselves, which feels like an enemy. And knowing that it may be possible to find something good even in the worst person and to thus recognize the Buddha nature in them, even if they behave badly. Our ability to love actually encompasses that duality of within ourselves and other people, just as loving awareness can touch all experiences with its light. Inner experiences and outer experiences, and Pascal's talk about the uh, incontinence talk, the <laughs> that love can look upon everything with that same face of compassion and understanding. Bombs, the saber rattling that's going on between North Korea and South Korea now, out in the world. We don't have to agree with it. Maybe we don't have to make it pretty. But to know it for what it is and love the beings involved, knowing the vulnerability that all of us share, like a thread that goes through every heart. I also just want to add here about allowing things not to connect and not sort of forcing ourselves beyond where we are, that sometimes the places in ourselves where we actually don't connect to something or someone or something in ourselves are spaces where we need to turn and take a closer look, a deeper investigation. There's a truth under there very often, just as when if I'm giving a Dharma talk and I say something that doesn't make sense to you, that it's, you know what's true for you and it isn't what I'm saying, then I want, you know, we all want you to stay with your truth in there. Also be willing to question, and sort of question both sides. Love in the Martin Luther King sense is not a sentimental or a gratifying emotion. It's not that pleasant feeling necessarily. It's goodwill for all people. We've found already inside ourselves all the characters, perhaps that the ways that we are our own benefactor, the ways that we're dear to ourself, the parts of ourselves that we don't know or kind of we, yeah, meh, you know, sort of okay in this realm, not so great, not so terrible, neither great nor terrible. And I think we've also all met the difficult person or the enemy inside us. And as we've tried to place attention again and again on all of these aspects of ourselves, it's like an external practice. Since, in fact, when we encounter external beings, the attraction and repulsion feelings are things that are going to resonate through ourself. So if we stay really grounded within our own experience, it's a great basis for doing loving-kindness externally on the spot. Before I move into more about meeting with other beings, I want to just say that so many of us in this culture and in many cultures, uh, not just Western, U.S. or European, are somehow wounded in the place of caring for ourself and loving ourself and respecting ourself. And we've become expert at abandoning ourselves. My Tibetan teacher, the one who was driving us to meet that old lama, said, well, maybe sometimes you should think of your bodhisattva vow as serving yourself like you're saving all beings. To turn that around, like whatever that sense of vast energy of love would be turned around to be received by you. Now, of course, he didn't mean that that's going to be your only practice. In fact, hidden in there is the implicit sense of by loving ourselves, we learn to love others or that They're mutually interdependent practices. By learning to love others, we also may learn to love ourselves. Two years ago when I taught this retreat, Marie Manschatz was here, a German teacher who was sitting part of the retreat with you guys. Um, And she said something that I've never forgotten, that it's not loving yourself 
too much that makes a person selfish or those people that seem to suck all the air and attention out of a room and be, ne- be needing, needing, needing so much from others. It's generally from a place of inner poverty that that happens. Whereas if people know how to love themselves well, tolerate themselves, then that sort of spills out. They somehow is extra. It's easier for them to love others. Somehow I think we have that some concept in our minds that that's not how it is. So when we find our own nature, Pablo Neruda said, one day you'll find yourself and that will be the happiest day of your life. But it's also the day that we'll find all other beings. Empathy begins at home. Puppies, when they're newborn and blind, if any of you know about how they do, they kind of squirm around in a box and they're like, (laughs) and they're kind of biting each other, you know, like they get a hold of each other's ear and they bite it and then the other puppy goes, ow! And (laughs) it's said that they figure out what hurts by when they hear themselves going, ow! And then they bite the other one and they hear, ow! And that's how they figure out that like the most, one of the most essential things for a dog is to know like how hard to bite or when it's a love bite or when to really use their teeth. And their early learning is by listening to their litter mates squeaking and saying like, no, I don't like that. And it's like, oh, ow, that's what it feels like for me. <laughs> We're kind of like that too. <laughs> you know, when we hurt each other's feelings and we know what that feels like. Why not to exclude other beings from our hearts because we know what that feels like? We've all gone through all of this. And if you just reflect for one second, it's like all the suffering and the joy that you've been through on this retreat, although in some weird way it seems unique and you know experienced in solitude, think about how the tingling in your foot probably feels a lot like the tingling in the person's foot next to you and you know the time when you're happy or... Maybe you like different food more, but the experience of looking and seeing your favorite food on the table, probably everyone here has either seen that or not seen it and had the corresponding feelings. (laughs) How our mind and heart gets caught and how we can work ourselves free. Like no matter what language we speak as human beings or where we come from, I think it's probably what you call a valid inference that it's about the same. So when someone else is having a like big tantrum of anger and you can see the mind getting caught in self-pity and accusation and just boiling and suffering and you know feeling so much pain and also attempting to cause pain to in the deluded state you know that you've been there and if you can move through your reactivity and be there kind of loving the person and seeing their suffering as if it were your own suffering much different experience than if you just find that other being to be unpleasant and annoying. The Buddha only taught after he realized that certain people would understand him, some people would be able to understand in practice. And if there weren't this common quality in our organism, then the instructions would never work. Does that make sense? So he had so many teachings on friendship and love and generosity and service in the Pali Canon. He had so many deep and close, intimate friendships in his life. There's the famous sutta about where Ananda says, oh, friendship has got to be half the holy life. And the Buddha said, no, friendship with the beautiful is all of the holy life. In a sense, encompassing both personal friendship and friendship with all of life, or this loving, bringing it back to the vast expanse of loving awareness, where in a sense, it's beyond you or me, or beyond self and other, friendship with the beautiful. Walt Whitman said, the other that I am must not abase itself to me, and I must not abase myself to the other. So we're really equal and deserving, like as much as there's that teaching that if I look around the universe, no being deserves love more than myself. But it's also true of every being. It's kind of obvious. We can know that, and we can live that teaching. It's part of the enlightenment teachings. So, Vipassana romance and erotic love, I'm going to go through a few varieties here of the human love. 
something very beautiful and intense uh, Jack read last night about seeing, as if you're seeing all the beauty of the universe streaming through some other person and our body mind gets really pulled through that and I think we've all experienced that form of love and attraction and deep resonance and desire. It's been erotified, er erotified, spiritualized in some of the Sufi poems comparing a spiritual quest to search for the beloved. Here's a Hafiz poem that was some of the poems that Jack read at the wedding last time. Do you know how beautiful you are? I think not, my dear. Tell me about your squirrels and your birds, your mother and your cousins. So that feeling of how through the eyes of another also we can see our own beauty through the eyes of another one who may love us or how we can give that beauty back to someone through the bonds of romance. My wife copes with debilitating conditions that would overwhelm most people. Multiple car accidents have left her with chronic pain and fatigue for the past 15 years, making her unable to work. Throughout this period, there's been one constant bright spot, date night, our euphemism for making love. Every Friday evening, my wife and I have dinner, watch a movie, and then get out the pipe and the cannabis. (laughs) She's legally able to purchase medicinal marijuana in our state. Although it's not prescribed as an aphrodisiac, it seems to serve that purpose for us. The joy we experience then is the healthiest part of her life. When one of her doctors heard we had such an active sex life, he was both perplexed and pleased, as patients in her condition typically don't enjoy sex. The combination of the cannabis, her natural sexuality, and the enormous trust and love we feel for each other makes every encounter seem new. After making love, she'll often say, Still the best thing in the world. (laughs) However, we also know that sexual love is a complicated thing. Sometimes becomes dark and ugly and mysterious in that way, how sex and love can be the source of so much pain for human beings. Road to divine union and true nature or road to trauma and devastation. I think it's just one of the places where our need to love and be loved and to give love is really dramatic and aesthetic and also a place of how painful it can be when this form of giving and receiving is interrupted, when someone you adored becomes last week's thought balloon (laughs) or even you start to hate them, how painful it is to lose the feeling in yourself as well as losing the person Another form of love that we undergo or live with as human beings is with our karmic family. Another very intense kind of bond that we have with our parents and our children and our sisters and our brothers. Just to talk about people's love for their families or love of one's children can be, for some people, an opening into deep, deep selfless caring, like a depth of love that hasn't been experienced before. And I think some of you know that. I don't have my own child, but I love the children of some others, and I'm close with a couple of very young or medium young people, and I know a little bit of what that feels like. The pride and the compassion and all of that. Um, But there can also be the kind of agendas that we have for those loved ones or how love of a child can become sitting at a dinner table and listening to someone tell you for hours about what their kids are doing and wondering like, if it's only a kind of expanded form of narcissism on their part. <laughs> but the joy that the people feel in just having like two hearts rather than just one, or having like a little bit bigger life, expanded life through the connection with another being, a younger being, living in the younger being's world. Pretty amazing. And yet sometimes families can feel in a certain way like the farthest away people from us, like... Uh, the people who have hurt us the most or the people, you know, sort of where the love should be and isn't and how painful that can be, like when we wish that we could connect, wish that we could help, wish that there was love and it feels like alienation instead. We live with that too for so long. Fuel for many of our spiritual 
quests here and fuel for many of the understandings and learnings on this retreat, as those of us who are teaching know. Kahil Gibran said, when you're sorrowful, when you're weeping, look deeply into your heart and see that you're weeping for that which has been your delight. Family is a source of you know, very great power and also a good place to do equanimity practice, to assert the love and also the letting be and the respect and the letting people go on their own way. Love between parent and child is a lot like that. Then there's um, friendly love or kind of affinity love where you really like the person. Maybe you might feel like a kind of love at first sight with certain friends as if you've known them from before, like there's a deep sense of connection and resonance and could be common uh, interests or something, having things in common. And that too, like the love for a child, can be the door to something really amazing I met someone recently who had been in a spiritual community when he was younger, and everyone got a different, got a new name from their teacher. And he said that when he was sitting next to his best friend, and his best friend got his name, he was just so joyous, and because he loved that person so much, and he was so so happy for him, like the understanding and, aff- and affinity. And I felt as he was telling the story that, in a sense, the fact that the joy was for someone else made it all the more powerful in a sense because it was beyond the feeling of like hoarding and amassing and controlling that we sometimes have you know in wishing joy for ourselves. that the person's ability to transfer their appreciation onto someone else was just made the you know happiness into a kind of ecstatic quality but we also know that there's causes and conditions affect friendships at times and there can be misunderstandings and things come up and that kind of love sometimes does alter when it alteration finds. Um, people grow apart, and uh, there's impermanence in those relationships. I'll take a little digression through the Buddha because of his manner of loving and what I found in the suttas when I was looking uh, for him and his friendships or friendship teachings in his community that there was a balance of love and of wisdom. And you hear him as a teacher and also as a close friend of many of the people around him where it was a kind of love and a kind of wisdom based on an understanding of impermanence and understanding of conditions coming and going. Um, His friendship with King Pasenadi included sort of advising King Pasenadi on diet and how much King Pasenadi should eat. King Pasenadi was having a weight problem. And uh, just close advice, you know, how much to eat in the morning, noon, and night and stuff. He was friends with a prostitute, the Buddha, who was friends with a very, very beautiful woman who was kind of like the super high-level courtesan. He was very loyal to her. He taught her and visited her despite the kind of scandalous nature of her job. And one time she invited the whole community to lunch and she put out her best for the lunch and... The Lichavi princes also invited the Buddha to lunch on the same day, and he said, no, she invited me first, I'm going. And they got really pissed off with him, and they were taunting him and saying that he was friends with the mango woman. (laughs) Her name was Malika. She eventually became a nun and a fully liberated arhant later on in her life. And she was kind of forced into prostitution by various family circumstances and stuff. It wasn't like necessarily her choice. There were a sense of his relating to people in their life and in their karmic kind of situation in their context and a sense of knowing how people at the time were squeezed by their society, by family cruelties and roles and money and stuff like that and how he intervened, giving them solace. And especially famous are uh, some of his stories for women who lost their kids or you know people who underwent kind of the deepest loving loss that they could um the story of kisa gotami who went crazy when she lost her infant and also there was a very wealthy donor woman named visaka who uh used to really help the buddha out a lot and rejoice a lot in her ability to give and support the community and at one point she kind of got very distraught over the death of a young grandson 
sort of feeling unreasonably carried away by her feelings despite all the teachings and meditations that she'd uh, gone to despite all her practice. She came running to him in the rain, all wet and crying and saying, you know, oh my God, the little kid has just died and I loved him so much. The Buddha said, um, if you don't understand death, your garments will always be wet. And after that, he, which is the real wisdom thing, almost saying, um, as one of you said in one of our meetings, that the understanding that when the body dies, the no one dies, the person doesn't die. The love can remain beyond the death of the body. And then he pointed Visakha also to the possibility of loving all the people in the town as her children and grandchildren, like her heart could have a destination, could have an opening. And I feel that he was knowing her well at that time, that she loved to give and loved to be like a part of the community and stuff and said, like, there's still beings that you can love with this universal heart of love, compassion, and wish to support. Knowing the joy she took in giving and supporting and that that would be for her, for her practice, part of her enlightenment path, part of her path of freedom. And there's a, some quotations from her about how the happiness that she got from seeing the effects of her service and her gifts to others were part of the, her seven factors of enlightenment um, and were bringing her closer to enlightenment. So the eternal, stable quality of love, the part it has in what's most sacred and uh, part it has in timelessness, knowing that um, seeing the eye of the whale is still somewhere in me. And I hope that for some of you, you'll you know, kind of tune to that vibration in your own way, what you've known and felt in the presence of another, whether it's a human being or another species. Knowing that in our apparently limited life, although our heart is really for all beings, these past, the past couple of styles of example are really a part of our path and our practice. The sexual or romantic relationships that some of us may have choose or be able to hold in our life and all the learning that we get from that and the true friendships and attempts to connect and share the love of people that it's easy to love the love that we have for our own self, um, that most intimate long-term relationship from which you can't really get a divorce. (laughs) Right? (laughs) To do our best and then let each of these classes of being be. And to see, you know, how our commitment to all beings might influence our relationships in each of these realms that might lead us to choices that include that are inclusive even though we operate through a life in which we have limited time and energy. Like I've noticed all the meetings and partings that we've all gone through in the interview rooms and how these last meetings of 15 or 20 minutes feel so full and also poignant and like, Now we have to say goodbye to this form that we've taken with each other. And how can we even do that? And, you know, how can, first, how can we meet? And then once we've met, how can we part? I mean, it's really a challenge, I have to say. Um, You know, do our best and then let it be. So, like the Dalai Lama's commitment is to love all beings and to go beyond, you know, encourage all of us to go beyond our tribalisms and our preference and our immediate sense of who we're connected to and who it's easy to love to really commit to the vision of the worthiness of all beings and make that a very serious part of our meditation practice. Of course, he has a special responsibility to the Tibetans, but there have been times um, where I read a book about how his activities on behalf of all beings on the planet and his speaking out and allowing himself to become a revered public speaker and a teacher for all of us actually has a difficult impact for some of the Tibetans left inside Tibet because of the sort of seeming phobia that certain parts of the Chinese system have for him. So the bigger and more prominent he gets, the more they oppress the Tibetans inside. And this is a razor's edge that he's very conscious of. But due to his committed 
love path, he tries to not, of course, like, you know, induce extreme cruelty in the people left at home, but he feels an obligation also to us. When you rise to the level of love, Martin Luther King goes on, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you can love, but you seek to defeat the system. So we all maybe can see that in our own ways, like how culture and uh, prejudice and samsara kind of beat us into shape and uh, possess us and give us wrong teachings. And to try to remember that the vulnerable human beings who are enmeshed in this, and as much as we try to you know, unlearn this unraveling in our sort of secret recesses of our heart, we're also bringing this to the world. We're also trying to look for where we can support something in the outer world and participate in our outer world in a way that reduces suffering for others. We can train ourselves in this activity, even in going to the grocery store, with the sense of meeting people as an old friend, not reducing people to kind of instruments and stuff, but actually it can be a practice that you wish well or you see the good or the enlightened part of someone or just for me it's easy like the way it works for me is to pretend I've known them for a long time and it changes something in the interaction changes something in the atmosphere so I'm going to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King's discussion of difficult people or enemies you know like I've found my own mind and the way politics has become you know very intensified now and feeling of sort of uh, lack of civil society in our country and just a sense of general stress in the world, how people can feel other when you think you have the right view in your own heart, that people who are doing the wrong things and stuff become like someone else and, you know, it feels okay to hate them or to see their face on TV and immediately feel yourself kind of shrivel up and go, oh, God, can't stand that person. (laughs) So Martin Luther King says what Jesus means when he says, love your enemy. He does not say, like your enemy. (laughs) And he's not saying, agree with what they do. Liking your enemy is a kind of like attachment thing. You don't have to like it. Just like in a way when we have experiences that come and go that are really difficult, we don't have to like it, but we do have to be with it and admit that it's there. Admit that it's happening and respond to it appropriately still with gentleness, still with some kind of wisdom. And we certainly don't have to agree with all the pain that's being spread around the world by people who have, they do have wrong views. It's okay to say that. It's okay to discern it and to have unpleasant thoughts about what's going on. King goes on and says, there's a lot of people I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. Anyone else feel this way? Love is greater than like. Then he goes on and says, to not allow yourself to be sort of subjugated by the impulse of hatred. The tragedy of hate is that it only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Just like ourselves when we struggle with an experience we don't like we just suffer more same thing in the outer world we're not really gonna help much by hating it only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the outer world somebody's got to have religion enough and morality enough to inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. Now this, I think, is a mystical statement, really empowering the practitioner to recognize that we're really changing the balance here, that we also are responsible for changing the structure of the universe or participating in the ongoing restructuring of something very vast that might be vaster and deeper 
than we can really know. Now I know for some of you I might be leaving you behind here, like that it doesn't seem very scientific, um, that maybe it's the aspirations of past beings that helps our practice to work here, that helps the work that we're doing here, that the way that we're sitting and the way that we're walking is a resonant form that carries actually a lot of blessings from enlightened beings before us who may not exist, um, but we know we're following in their footsteps in some way. And what we're giving into this world is something that alters the structure of things, affects causality somehow. And you can just say that the difference in interaction that you might have with some stranger on the street or someone uh, who you sort of feel willing to look at the good side of how and not stay stuck in your position and be willing to talk to as if they were worthy and worthy of respect again, what that might do to the structure of an interaction or to not let yourself be trampled if you feel like you've been a doormat and to withdraw from interactions where you feel like you've been used or are being used, where your internal being and your sense of oppression um, gives you a warning that you shouldn't be feeding the hatred or the selfishness in someone else's heart. Equally valid kind of change, equally great expression of love. There's a part in the Bodhisattva vows where it says the Bodhisattva gives their body in service to other beings, but does not give their body in service to beings who are acting out the wishes of Mara, you know, who are going to perpetuate delusion. So you don't serve that. You try to see it clearly. What is your best response? Roshi Jiu Kennet, who's a female Zen master, who I think is around Mount Shasta or was, very eccentric person as far as I know, but very wise too, said, I won't get to heaven until I'm one with this world in which I live. So as you go from here, remember that, that the goodness of your life or of the practice or of love or of wisdom is not living in this meditation hall. This is not the only place. And just as the love of, you know, our ancestors and the strength of our ancestors is with us, uh, strength of people who went through a lot to keep their genetic material alive and, you know, produce us out of some form of love. Like when I was in India, the, traveling in a car one time, and I was, we were talking about the population crisis in India, and the driver said, yes, we are a very loving country. <laughs> <laughs> it's not completely, you know, untrue that love brought us here. Um, has to have been something getting us this far. So this place where we've all been kind of stewing together, I think, you know, sometimes I sit and think of us like a bunch of beans and ingredients in this big soup pot cauldron thing and bay leaves and this morning Jack was the big onion, I thought. (laughs) Sending flavor through everyone with that beautiful talk last night. That we've all been a part of one another's experience here in large or small ways, whether we learned each other's name or not, but you know, the sense of us being together and hearing and listening and seeing each other and meeting and exchanging the wisdom and the laughter and the tears, that's all been part of our transformation of our touching our own ground. Pretty soon the river of change is going to wash us all down the hill to new encounters with other beings and with our life. And to know that it's like not to resist. We're not really separate from that river of change on any level. The microscopic level that some of us look at or the level of change in relationship, change of relationship in ourself. And that surrender and that unclenching of the rigidly separated self that will allow this change to come. This life that's in us, this inseparable life that we're all part of, caught in what Einstein said was the optical illusion of consciousness that we're separate. Reality, we're not. And part of it, you know, our head knows that 
might know that we're all atoms and electrons and carbon and stuff, but what does it take to bring it through the cells and the heart and have it be part of how we live? And what would that mean for each of us to participate at that level where we already are participating, but to know it? It sort of seems like we get the teachings, we need each other, but somehow each of us has to sort of do this and bring it down or bring it through or make it real or make it realized. Very curious affair. Well, uh, and some of that involves giving, like giving and sacrifice at times, the meaning of our life. It's not only to just fill ourselves with love and wisdom and feel it for ourselves. Sometimes you give it away and sometimes you give at times when it's not so easy to give. I think we all know that too. There can be meaning in that, beauty in that, uh, ability to give of ourselves, of our time, of our heart, of our service, and giving what's um, difficult love in a time of challenge. So I'll close with uh, words of Walt Whitman, another one of our, part of my agenda here has been to have Western enlightened poets and teachers and Sages, Walt Whitman being one of them. The sound of the belched words of my voice, loose to the eddies of the wind. A few light kisses, a few embraces. A reaching round of arms. The play of shine and shade on the trees as the supple boughs wag. The delight alone, or in the rush of the streets, or along the fields and hillsides. The feeling of health, the birds trill at noon, the song of me rising from bed and meeting the sun. This is all one, kind of a oneness in his consciousness. I've heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning and the end. There was never any more beginning than there is right now, no more youth or age than there is now. There will never be any more perfection than there is right now nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. Thank you. Sit for a minute, or two, or three. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.